to hear, I'd like to hear a few of them. Anybody want to tell us what their, one of their favorite Christmas treats is? Favorite goodies? What's that? I have never heard of that, but I'm going to, I'm going to believe you on that. Okay, very good, very good. Somebody else, oh, way back there. Okay, we're just, we're just making up things. <laughs> oh, 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 treat. Oh, treat, like a goodie, a baked item, or a, a sweet, something. Oh, yes. Eggnog, you have an eggnog fan. Maybe a couple more, yes. What's that? The ham, that has to be part of, of Christmas for some reason. I always thought it was so un-Jewish, but uh, it's, still, it's still tasty, a honey-baked ham. Oh, kosher ham. How, how does that work? I did see kosher bacon recently on the Food Channel. Um, it's apparently made of another animal. Yeah, did you have one, an item? Almond roca. That is a favorite of mine, too. Man, I'm already distracted. There's a lot of really good, tasty goodies. And... Uh, my wife makes a lot of great goodies. Uh, she's been baking for a long time, and she has some that are just dangerously good. It might be my slow demise, but I'll die with a smile on my face, so, so no complaints. In fact, she, uh, she started baking as a child, and once she was uh, maybe junior high, uh, she was over at her friend's house, and they were going to bake some cookies. Uh, Mom was gone, but they had her a recipe and and permission, and so they went about making uh, these cookies, and they came across the ingredient oleo, and uh, there's only two reasons you would know what oleo is. Either you were born before 1970, or you like to do crossword puzzles, because it's always in the crossword puzzles, and uh, and she was neither, so they thought, um, well, I don't really know what that is or what it's for, so they just uh, left it out. And uh, for those of you who don't do crossword puzzles and were uh, born after 1970, it's uh, like margarine. So, uh, so they baked the cookies. They came out, and uh, they were so stuck to the pan that they had to pry them off with the spatula and broke the spatula um, trying, to, trying to break the, the butterless cookies free. So why do I tell this story? <laughs> because I'm hungry right now. No. <laughs> I tell this story because sometimes when we don't know what something's for, we don't know the purpose of it, we tend to just omit it. We leave it out. Uh, it must not be that important if I've never heard of it. And uh, some ways, this is the case with prayer at church. We all know that we're supposed to pray, but when we don't know what it's for, what the purpose of it is, we tend to just uh, let it slide by and we ignore it. We might pray thinking, is this just tradition? Like, oh yeah, we've always prayed at church. Is it just for transition? Well, we don't know what else to say, so we'll kind of segue with a prayer. Or, as is guilty of, uh, of youth pastors and former youth pastors, uh, sometimes when kids just won't stop yapping, you're like, well, if we start praying, maybe they'll stop talking as a last resort. But these are not the purposes for prayer in church. And First Baptist Church, I'm happy to say, is a praying church. We pray in our services for specific reasons. Uh, the deacons get together every Thursday morning and pray for the church family. Uh, the staff gets together on Tuesday morning and prays for First Baptist Church. 
when we have our, uh, our Bible studies and groups meet together and we have business meetings, we go to the Lord in prayer because we deeply believe in it. In fact, we might say prayer is our first priority. At least it certainly should be, as we'll learn in our passage today. So we discover why should we pray in church? Why does God want us to pray? We're continuing on in our, our series in 1 Timothy. And uh, again, this is the letter from, um, from Paul, the apostle, to uh, Timothy. And it's about Timothy setting in order the things in the church. It's, you could say it's doing church as God intended. So Timothy, this young guy, is set in charge of choosing leaders, uh, overseeing what's taught in the church, taking care of problems, and all of these things. And uh, Paul starts laying out some of these things, but he starts the passage this way, and we're going to be in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 7, and uh, it starts like this. He says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. In other words, we're going to talk about a lot of things about church. You know, how we should do this, what we should think about, what we should teach. But first of all, of primary importance, is that we are a praying church. The very first thing. And what kinds of prayer? Supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings. These are, are different kinds of prayers, you know, praying for, for our needs, praying for other people, giving thanks to God for the gifts in our lives. So you might say that prayer should, the church should be a place for all kinds of prayer. And who is it for? It's for all kinds of people. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. In Mark 11, verse 17, uh, this is about Jesus, and he says this. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Here Jesus is actually quoting from Isaiah, and he says that my house, whether it's the tabernacle or the temple or the church, should be above all a prayer house, a place of prayer. Some of you have asked about the strange logo on the top of the notes and in the, and in the overhead the last few weeks. It's the word uh, ekklesia, which is Greek for the church or an assembly, a called-out group of people, or a gathering of people together. So it refers to God's gathered people, the ecclesia. So when God's people gather, they should be known, above all, for prayer. In Hebrew, when he refers back to the Isaiah passage, um, it's bet tephelah, house of prayer. This season, um, the city of Bethlehem, Bethlehem, plays prominent in the, the Christmas story, doesn't it? Bethlehem means the house of bread. So apparently Bethlehem was known for bread. Maybe it was like we use today, um, the bread basket of you know, this region or something like that. 
Or maybe they had some, some really famous bakers there. It's like, oh, you've got to go to the house of bread you know, to get your, your bread in, in Bethlehem. So when we talk about the church, people should say, oh, that place is the house of prayer. It's a prayer house above all. But why? Why is prayer such a big deal to God? And especially, why is prayer, when God's people get together, so important? And this morning, we're going to look at four reasons from this passage of why it is such a big deal. And then at the end, we're going to take a few minutes to actually practice together uh, a time of prayer. So I just wanted to, to prep you on that. Don't panic. But here's the first reason. Why does God want us to be a praying church? First, through prayer, we can live in peace in a chaotic world. Verse 2 says this. To pray for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So we pray for things that are completely out of our control. Kings, those who are in high positions, what can we do? We can pray. We can always pray. So sometimes, especially as our culture becomes increasingly you know, unchristian on this trend, sometimes it's hard to be a Christian in the United States of America right now. But it's not near as hard as it was to be a Christian in Ephesus. It's a, a Christian minority in a Jewish minority inside the Roman state. And so its uh, laws were against them. They were persecuted. They were, they were shunned, isolated. Just life was just really, really hard. And Paul says, you, you can't control these things. They're way beyond you. Life's hard. But you know what you could do? You can pray. You can actually live in peace in a chaotic world through prayer. So there's several descriptions in that verse. Lead a peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified life. And I'd like to just comment on those as I study these words and you know, looked at lexicons, just kind of get a grasp of what he's talking about here. Peace is uh, a tranquility, a peaceful, free from tu- tumult. I realize how hard that is to say out loud. Um, your life does not need to be filled with this chaos. Quiet, it doesn't just mean like keeping your mouth closed, but it means free from being unruly or disturbing. It means you don't have to be a jerk to be a Christian. You don't have to be obnoxious. You can have an inward calm and serenity in a chaotic world when you pray. He says, godly. You can have a life characterized by deep devotion and reverence for God when you pray. We're not talking about compromising. We're talking about deep devotion to God and inner peace in the midst of, of a chaotic world. And, and finally, dignified, evoking or earning a special measure of respect. In a world that's not, it, well, it's increasingly less Christian, you can have the respect of your neighbors. This dignity here doesn't mean this austere, like, 
holier than thou, like, oh, that person's super special. It means that, that people just respect you, like, yeah, that's a great, that's a great guy, that, that's a great neighbor. You could be that person through prayer. Because you take the problems that are so much bigger than anything we could ever fix or handle, and instead of getting all spun up and anxious and obnoxious, instead you take it to prayer. It's kind of a choice. There's two ways to handle this when um, your Christian faith is in conflict with the world around you. You can get stressed out, obnoxious, compromising, disrespected, or you can pray. And that's the first reason why prayer is so important. That's why we want to be a praying church. There's a really interesting passage in Jeremiah that uh, this made me think of as I was studying. In Jeremiah 29. So, over centuries, the nation of Israel, which was a great and godly nation, had over centuries degenerated until it was a complete mess. Um, They'd largely walked away from God, and it was falling apart. In some ways, this might ring a bell to current situations. And uh, eventually, God brought mighty Babylon in to take over, destroy, wipe out um, Israel. They they destroyed the holy places. They tore down the walls. They took people away. Lots of people died. The best of the best, they took captive. And horrible, horrible deal. So the ones who uh, survived, those were mostly imported into Babylon, taken away as, as exiles. And so this is what God says to the exiled people living in a, in a godless place. Um, he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what he says. Build houses. Live in them. Plant gardens and eat the produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters. And multiply there. Do not decrease. And seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in it, its welfare, you will have welfare. So I think when there's a trend, when the culture becomes increasingly post-Christian, the church needs to take on an exile uh, mode of operating where we're not the mighty hand. God's still the mighty hand, always. But instead, we need to be winsome. We need to battle on our knees in prayer because God can move things that we could never move. And in the midst of it, we need to just make this place we live a better place. Be the best citizen Cambria has. Be the best neighbor you could possibly be. Pray for the welfare, the goodness, the the wholesomeness of the place where you live. This is an an exile posture to take. Really an interesting passage in Jeremiah that I think speaks a lot to where we live right now. So instead of fighting battles you can't win, you simply go to the Lord who has it Under his control, he's totally sovereign. It's a different posture, I think, we we take. We need a a shift in the mind of our our mode of engaging the world around us. When I was first a a youth pastor, I was barely out of high school myself. You know, I did college, but then 
so mid-20s. Um, first youth pastor in Mira Mesa, which was the same town I went to school in. A massive high school, um, almost 4,000 students, and I was lost in the crowd in high school, could not figure out what even high school was about. Um, I just went in, got out, went home, and my day started. But, um, but really intimidated by the whole thing. So now, as still a young guy, um, I had the opportunity to go to the principal's office. So I'm, I'm a youth pastor, and uh, this is when CU at the Pole was just getting, uh, getting going. That's where students meet around their flagpoles to pray, and, and I was with some other youth pastors who were trying to coordinate this uh, in that town, and uh, we were telling our students about it, but, but I felt compelled to, or I got the short straw or whatever, to go and talk to the principal. And I could have come in with, you know, well, here's the court cases that says this, okay, and here's what we're going to do, and et cetera, but... Partly, I, I didn't know all those things, but, uh, but I took the demeanor of, uh, well, we just want to pray, and how can we pray for you? And I, I asked the principal, you know, what, as the principal of this school, what do you see as the biggest uh, needs? And she immediately, her demeanor changed, and she thought, well, um, pray for, uh, just, I guess just pray for peace, you know? Like, that's all she could come up with. And uh, I'm like, I could think of a list of problems, but yeah, we'll pray for that. And, uh, and she was at ease, and it was almost like if she didn't believe in prayer at all, at minimum, she thought it was harmless. And so, uh, like, go ahead and do that. And it was a winsome way to gather together as students and call on the almighty power of God to make a difference in that place, to make a difference on that, that campus. And, uh, and the Lord did, did make a difference on that campus. So let me say this, because I don't want to be misunderstood. Two things. Prayer is not the ticket to an easy life. So by, uh, when I say that we can live in peace in a chaotic world, it doesn't mean, well, if I pray, you know, life's just going to go smooth. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we can first go to God and he'll fight our battles for us. Also, I'm not saying that we never stand up for injustice, or we never do something about the problems in the world. Yes, vote. <laughs> yes, make a difference. Yes, don't back down your convictions. But first, first, we pray. We go to the God who could do something about it. Above all, be a praying church. Okay, so what else? He has three other reasons in this passage, and... Uh, we pick it up in verse 3. It says, because this, that is praying for all people, all kinds of prayers, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. And this we learn that through prayer, we can actually enjoy and enter into the presence of God. In the sight of, um, in the English Standard Version, it really means to be in the presence of or before. It's like somebody's right there in front of you. So, um, and good is just beautiful, good, and pleasing is welcomed or approved. Pleasing. So you might say that when we enter in in prayer, when you engage with God in prayer, you enter into the presence of God. And he invites you there with a smile. He says, 
come to me. Come sit at my feet. Come enjoy my presence. Come, come learn from me. Come be healed in your heart and stand or sit or curl up in the arms of our loving, mighty God. Hebrews 4.16 says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, because of what God has done for us, because he has paid the ultimate sacrifice to open up the holy place in eternity that for us to access, we can confidently, boldly, just walk right into the throne room of God. And we do that by praying. We do that by intentionally engaging with God through prayer. We talk to him. As we sing worship songs together, we address them knowingly to God. We, we, in our minds, place ourselves before God. And lo and behold, we really are before God, in the presence of God. Many of you are familiar with the story of Esther, where uh, she was uh, you know, picked to be the replacement queen because the former queen you know, ticked off the monarch. And uh, she had to go to the king on behalf of her people, but even the queen herself couldn't approach the throne of the king without permission. And so for her to walk in there to plead on behalf of her people, it was putting her life at stake. You know, would the scepter be you know, placed before her where she could enter or not? Well, this is not how it is with God. You are, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you're a son or daughter of God. And he invites you to freely come right in any time of the day or night to the throne room of God in heaven. In the church I was at before, I had an office there, and it was a big campus, and a lot of other things were going on. And uh, occasionally, my kids, for various reasons, would be on campus during the week, and, and sometimes they would stop in. And it was always just fun to see my kids stop in my office, even though if I was doing something else, it was like, yeah, you know, you're my kid, come on in. Um, this uh, whatever thing can wait. And that's how God is with you. Come into my office. Come into my throne room. And that happens when we pray. It's an unimaginable privilege to dwell in God's presence. But it doesn't stop there. Because when we dwell in God's presence, when we sit before him, when we um, remain and abide with God, then our hearts are changed. They come in alignment with God's heart. And in particular, for God's heart for the lost. So the third thing prayer does, or the third reason it's important to God that we pray at church, is through prayer, our hearts are aligned with God's heart for the lost, for those who do not yet have a relationship with him. This is the big thing on God's heart, as we see in verses 4 to 6. Because God, he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's just one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So God Almighty, what he is passionate about is that people everywhere come to know him. 
that they're saved from the, the destiny of their sin, and instead they come and become alive in Christ. And there's only one way that happens, the one mediator, the one go-between between a holy God out there and, you know, obviously unholy us here, is Jesus Christ. He's paid the price to mediate between. And so God's heart is that people come to him through Christ. That's, that's his passion. That's what he's about. That's his desire, the desire of God, that, they, that people are saved and that they come to the knowledge of the truth. So, when you and I come before God into his throne room and sit with him and dwell with him and learn from him, more and more our passions start to look like his passions. And what he's passionate about is that people come to know him, that people give their lives to him by trusting in Jesus Christ. Well, before Heather and I were married, and sorry, two stories about Heather today. I'll probably have to take her out to lunch or something. Um, She's like, yeah, sure. Before we were married, uh, Heather did not really snorkel or mountain bike. But over the years, I've gotten into snorkeling and mountain biking. And because she loves me and likes to spend time with me, uh, usually, she uh, has picked up mountain biking and, uh, and snorkeling. And uh, here's just some, you know, fun pictures of us mountain biking. Because when we spend time with somebody, we start to pick up the passions that... Uh <laughs> oh, no. Is that, did that come from my row? <laughs> when we spend time with people, we, uh, we start to pick up the passions that they have. And the passions that God has is that people trust Jesus as their Savior. My youth pastor um, shared his prayer list as we were praying together. There were several of us, and he had this list of things he was praying for. And next to each item on the list, he had a scripture verse. So maybe he was praying for his neighbor that, that didn't know Jesus yet, and maybe he had this verse from this passage that talks about God wanting people to, to come to the knowledge of him. And uh, maybe, he was praying for, um, maybe he was praying for the government, and maybe this was the verse early in our chapter where it says, pray for kings and those in authority. Where whatever was on his list, he had a verse next to it because he wanted to pray about the things that are close to, to God's heart. And, uh, and we should too. So, When we dwell in God's presence, we get passionate about the things that God is passionate about. But it doesn't stop there. When we get passionate about the things he's passionate about, then we are mobilized to make a difference. Only then are we really moved into action with the right heart and the right power, the right backing, so to speak, because it's God who is doing it. Verse 7 says this. Uh, This is about Paul. For I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying, just in case anyone's wondering. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Okay, Paul was was passionate, but not really about God. It was religious, but he was was misled, and he was an angry, uh, divisive, uh, hate speech kind of a guy, persecuting Christians. And on the road to Damascus, the Lord himself met him 
blinded him and set him on a new course entirely. The Saul of old became the Paul, the apostle. Uh, He was commissioned for a task of being a teacher of the Gentiles, for being a preacher, for being an apostle, and a sent one from God. So, so Jesus commissioned Paul to be this kind of a person. Paul got passionate about uh, the Gentiles. It's literally uh, ethnos or ethnicities, the groups, the other people, those outside, different kinds of people groups all over the world. Um, Paul got passionate that those people, all those people out there, would know about Jesus. And he went on a serious mission. So he didn't just sit there and think about how nice that would be if people you know, came to Christ everywhere. He went on a serious mission to go uh, make that happen. <laughs> he got on a ship and started sailing. He went from town to town. He planted churches. He did these things because after spending time encountering Jesus, then he was mobilized to do the things that are close to God's heart. So when you spend time with God, how has he stirred your heart? Are there things that that come to mind in the world that need writing that uh, he might move you to be part of? Does he bring to mind people that that need to come to a knowledge of him? Does he bring to mind people that you need to forgive or ask forgiveness of? What does God stir in your heart as you dwell with him? Well, this passage tells us that don't just let it stir in there. Go do something about it. Paul was commissioned, and then he went. There's an interesting story. Um, many of you know about William Wilberforce, late 1700s. In British Parliament, he became an evangelical Christian uh, as he was already into his career. With his newfound faith, he was confronted with the reality of the slave trade and the horrific treatment of the slaves. And from there, he was mobilized to seek an end to the slave trade. And his campaign ultimately led to the passing of the Slavery Abolition Act in 1833. So here's a guy, because of his Christian faith, because he was spending time with God, he saw something in the world that was definitely wrong, and he set out at great cost to do something about it. And that's what God would have for all of us. As he stirs our heart for things that are not right in this world, what would he have us do? They might be small They might be huge. But here's the thing. We don't start with the action plan. The order is important. We start in this order here. Through prayer, we can live at peace in a chaotic world. Okay, so that's the starting place. We realize internally, I don't need to be just ripped apart by the world. I can be at peace because I know Jesus. Then we just boldly go right to the throne of God. We walk right into his throne room, sit in his lap, and just spend time with him. And as we do, then our hearts are shifted, sometimes slow, but they come more and more in line with the things that God loves, the things he's passionate about. And then we do something about it. That's when we are mobilized to make a difference in this world. So, Praying in church, it's not just for a transition. It's not just because, well, I don't know, we've always prayed in church. 
It's not, uh, it's not so the, the worship team can come up while nobody's watching. It's not any of these things. You know, some of these things happen, but um, prayer is for these reasons right here. It's being in God's presence, aligning our hearts to his, and being mobilized to make a difference in this world. Pray like it really matters. It's not just something we do. It's for a purpose. And so we're going to take some time, actually, as a church family, to pray like it really matters. Um, I'm going to put four things on the screen. I shall bring them up right now. Not sure you could read those in the back. I'll, I'll read them to you as well. And uh, I'd give you just a few minutes. Um, Emily's going to come play the piano for us. And uh, a few minutes to either find somebody near you, one or two people, and, uh, and just pray about these things. Or if you're uncomfortable with that, that's, that's totally fine. You can pray on your own or sit there silently, and we won't know. Um, and as you catch on and get more comfortable, uh, then you're invited to pray as well. So we're just going to spend a few minutes and uh, to jump right in praying once we, we start. Either grab one or two people next to you or, or take this time just silently on your own. And here's what I, I'd like us to focus our prayer time because there's an infinite number of things we could potentially pray about. Let's, let's focus on these. Uh, first, pray that God would have his way in the chaos of your world. And maybe the big things on your mind right now are, are global or, or national, or maybe they're, they're right closer to home or neighbors or in your own family. Sometimes being together at the holidays kind of accentuates uh, some of the chaos in, in family relationships. So bring those things before God. Take some time to thank God for the access to his presence, for his invitation for relationship. I'm really thankful for that. Take, take a moment to pray that God would align your heart with his love for the lost and, and mention people if they come to mind. And finally, pray that God would show you how he wants you to make a difference in this world. So we're not going to take a long time, but just, um, just as Emily starts playing, uh, just take this time to pray, and I'll, I'll close this in just a few minutes.